0: Linda.
2: Can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? <laughs> Greetings, listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Very excited about today's guest. Um, this is a real... I mean, he's got a book, and he's this big fancy-pants guy who wears belts at the Atlantic and all that. But... Uh, um, he's one of these guys who I've known for, I, I hate to say it, I think it's, it's coming up on 30 years now. Um, uh, in the early days, well, we'll get to how, how that's a fact in a second, but first let me introduce him. Cause I, I suppose i got to do that. Um, Franklin Foer is a former editor of the New Republic. Um he's a national correspondent for the Atlantic and he's a fellow at the New America Foundation.
1: I'm I'm actually I'm actually not a fellow at the New America Foundation. That's like that's um some sort of vestigial uh piece of the internet that you've consumed.
2: I apologize. The bio I have is from your uh the Penguin Random House Speakers Bureau. Well, so that's I, uh, yeah. I for years like 20 years after, 15 years after I did it, I was still in, commonly introduced as a occasional co-host of Crossfire, <laughs> which was particularly funny since the show had been canceled for like seven years. Yeah. All right. uh, all right, but this is gold, so we're just keeping it all in. Uh, he is not at the new uh, America Foundation, uh, but he is at the Atlantic and is uh, the author of many books, the latest of which is uh, The Last Politician Inside Joe Biden's White House and the Struggle for America's future. Franklin Fowler, welcome to The Remnant. Ah, so good to be here. So uh, for, for listeners who don't know, um, I've mentioned this when Will salatan has been on here before he went to the, the bulwark and he was sort of the house goy of this podcast. Um, <laughs> Except that he's Jewish, but yeah. I know, but I just mean like, I'm the I, for a while I was like the house goy at NPR. I was like the conservative they brought on and it's like he was like the liberal guy I would get into arguments with. And um, you Dave Plotz, Will Salatan, this guy, um, Seth Stevenson, and uh, and and a rotating cast of, like, Michael Kinsley and those guys who we didn't really have lunch with. But the, the younger people, like you yes. and me, um, uh, we shared offices on the 12th floor of the AI building. Um, you had nothing to do with AI at the time. I kind of had nothing to do with it. I was a television producer, but complicated. But we would have lunch all the time together um, and get into these great sort of, liberal conservative, uh, food fights, um, at lunch. And so, and you were working at Slate at the time and, uh, which is still a thing notionally. And, um, uh, but, uh, maybe we can talk about that a little bit. It, You're making me misty eyed, man. I know, uh, <laughs>
1: it, it's, it's, it's lost. It's charming neoliberalism, but it's also, can I say, so? can I say, can I interject one thing, which is, Absolutely. that. um, it was that world that we existed in felt like it disappeared awfully quickly. That um, yeah, you know, so it it just the idea that this AI building could that Herb Stein I think was uh, the great economist mm-hmm. was the one who invited Slate into the building, and there was something kind of wonderful about having the electricity of having people who don't agree with one another coexist on the same floor. We were actually not even in; we were in the same suite of offices, I believe. And, um, I mean, there were some parts of it that were fun. So Michael Kinsley, who was the editor of the slate, really disliked your boss, Ben Wattenberg. Yeah. That, that goes around. Yeah. And so, uh, we would, I would torture Michael when he would come to visit and I would steal headshots of Ben Wattenberg from your office. And I just put them everywhere that Michael Kinsley went over the course of his day. So he'd open up his laptop and there would be a picture of Ben Wattenberg smiling at him. He'd go to the bathroom and make sure that there were Ben Wattenbergs everywhere. Those were the days. I'm not sure I would have been able to handle that too much either. I had a, <laughs> had a, had a, a weird relationship with
2: Ben. But um, yeah, no, it was great to have you guys around. And, and like, I mean, uh, obviously, Kinsley, I was a big fan of, but I also, I had my, sort of like my dad loved to argue with the New York Times because he thought it was a worthy opponent kind of thing. Like there was, a, Kinsley's brand of liberalism could drive me crazy. Um, and the sort of formula of the way he would write about how if conservatives actually believe what they say they believe, they would be against aborting their the, the, the skin cells on their thumbs because that could be turned into a human too. And it's like, oh, maybe you're just, you know, there's like a lot of logic chopping kind of stuff. But he was a great guy to sort of engage with. You know, I mean, it's not like I knew him all that well, personally. Um, but I was grateful to him. He gave me one of my first writing assignments for Slate. Um, but it was just a great idiosyncratic bunch of people to hang around with and get into stupid arguments with.
1: Yeah, no, I remember that first piece that you wrote for Slate. I don't know if I'm hijacking the show by just being a nostalgic because it was in the middle, it was at the onset of um, the Lewinsky scandal. And I you did a breakfast table, I believe. And I can't remember who you did it with. Margaret Carlson. Margaret Carlson. I remember you describing running into, maybe it was um, running into like, Running into somebody at a big getting bagels, and you described how they were getting a bagel with a hefty, hefty uh, dose of smear. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Wordplay. Wordplay. It was good wordplay. <laughs> it was quality. It was, I mean, you know, it's uh, uh, it, <laughs> it was just a wordplay that it was just so apt.
2: <laughs> Those were indeed different times. Um, and it was funny how all of a sudden, when I had sort of inside info about the. Lewinsky stuff and all of that, which is not a memory lane. We need to go too far down. Uh, how all of a sudden, all of these sort of liberal journalists who normally just, you know, really didn't spend too much time talking to me, just hey, how you doing, Jonah? Calling me up on the phone and wanting to
1: um, have a uh, deep and personal conversations. But I, can I can I just say uh, an earnest note, which is that um, you know, as we're celebrating this kind of quaint bygone world where um, liberals and conservatives would share lunch in the uh, the AEI dining room and would trade insults and in kibitz and in this kind of fraternal sort of way. But I did learn so much from the course of those sorts of interactions about about conservatism, which wasn't just this um, you know foreign enemy. It was something that to be interrogated. It was something that um, when I had questions, I I would um, I'd get pointed in the direction of the right book to read. I would get, um, even some of the, the, the kind of asides that you'd get in the hall that were just provocations were things that made me actually reconsider things that I hadn't actually ever challenged in my own, um, first principles of precepts. And so it was enormously beneficial to me as a, as a human being, I think to have that kind of, um, ecosystem.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I talk a lot about the, my, I sort of got a graduate Great education working at AI as a young research assistant but like a big part of like how to like engage in good faith with liberals I got from hanging out a lot with you guys and also my um you know I, I used to do dog and pony stuff with Peter Beinart all the time and uh your replacement or predecessor at predecessor Rep- predecessor at, at the New Republic and I I won't people keep asking me, why don't you have him on to talk about Israel stuff on your podcast? And it's because I don't want to get into a nasty conversation with Peter because he's a friend. Um, But uh, it was, you know, it's, it's, it's really good to talk to people you disagree with if, if you can assume a certain amount of good faith on their part. And there's so little of that today, which is so weird.
1: Yeah. Even on Israel, where I don't agree with Peter, I make myself kind of read his, read his stuff and watch him because, uh, even if I don't, I'm never going to land in the same place that he lands, it helps remind me about certain parts of the moral dimension of the conflict that I would rather, you know, that that are easy to shunt to the side. And so I think it's that type of engagement, even with people we disagree with on, you know, whatever way we disagree with them, even on issues that are the most sensitive to us.
2: Yeah, but I, I mean, there's another reason for, with, with, with the Peter thing, and I didn't mean to drag Peter into all this stuff, but is that I remember... Kinsley telling this story about how someone wanted him to debate, like he thought Milton Friedman was completely wrong about monetary policy. And someone said, we'd like to host a debate between you and Milton Friedman on monetary policy. And Michael Kinsley was like, are you freaking kidding me? I'm not going to debate Milton Friedman about monetary policy. And it wasn't because like he thought Milton Friedman was right. It's just like, there's a certain asymmetry of knowledge, right? If you spend all of your time, you know, Doing deep dives on certain topics, it becomes very difficult for some for a generalist to come in, oh, yeah, because you just don't know what's wrong with some of their claims or some of their arguments, not to say that bad faith or anything. It's just like, um you know, I'm not going to debate, even though i let me put it this way, I would think very long and hard about debating some obscure foreign policy topic with with Walter Mearsheimer, even though I think he's wrong about everything, simply because, you need to know the move six chess steps ahead about some arguments where your, your, your knowledge base just kind of goes off a cliff. I don't follow Israel with the granular detail that, that, that Peter does, but I can marvel at the fact that he can study with such detail and end up in a place I think is so wrong. Um, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. We don't have to dwell on all of these things. Um, you had a book, you wrote a book. Yes. About a guy. Um, and, uh, normally I violated my first rule on this podcast, which is, uh, when I have authors on the first question I always ask them is what's your book about? So we're getting there now. So what's your book
1: about? I'm going to just narrate this as I, uh, is I experienced writing the book. So my publisher came to me in the summer of 2020 and said, write a book about the first hundred days of the Biden presidency. And I said, eh, you know, I, I was not exciting to me, be, in part because Joe Biden is not excited, was not exciting to me. Uh, as uh, his poll numbers suggest, he's not exciting to very many people. Um, I thought it was interesting, the idea of writing about a group of people who were going to be kind of rushing into a government in the middle of the pandemic and uh, dealing with all these broken institutions of government. And I'd never done a piece of access journalism before, which made me both very nervous about doing it, but also... Interested in trying out something new and different, and so I went ahead. And then, of course, as these things happen, the book ballooned on me, and um, it it was expanded to be a book about the first year, and then about the first two years of the Biden presidency. And I would say, in part, the book doesn't just chronicle the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the Ukraine war. The legislative um, sagas, it also chronicles the way in which I came to have much more respect for Joe Biden, I think over the course of watching him up close, that this guy who I'd always thought of as a bloviator um, had technique that I didn't actually know that he possessed. And really, it was about the way in which I ended up respecting this kind of cartoonish version of what a politician is much more over the course of um observing him up close okay so i've only dipped in and out
2: of the book i've had like 25 authors on here in the last <laughs> 6 months right. and i got you're you're forgiven on. let me just sort of let me level set here i i hear you on having a newfound respect for just like normal politicians yeah uh, because one of the reasons why our institutions are broken it seems to me is because they're not doing normal politics right yeah and Congress is supposed to be this place where you trade favors and log roll and compromise and do committee work, and it's not doing that because everybody wants to be a essentially a pundit on TV, and they're all making the perfect the enemy of the good, and they all think bipartisanship is the worst thing in the world. And a lot of the things that would fix our politics is to get back to like the old Tip O'Neill thing: all politics is local. It's just not true anymore. All politics has been nationalized yep. in a lot of ways, and so. At the meta level, I'm very sympathetic to your, you know, sort of, because uh, it happened to me too, your newfound appreciation for like normal politicians and normal politics. Yeah. Um, and yet. <laughs> and yet I am unpersuaded that um, Biden himself is as good as you suggest at normal politics and i was you know like some of the anecdotes from your book suggest that he kind of you know as lyndon johnson paraphrase lyndon johnson you know steps on his own johnson on on a a lot in these kinds of things and so i'm just wondering like what is the best argument what are the best examples of some behind the scenes things that show he's a really
1: good politician yeah so i think that the problem, the, the the paradox of Joe Biden, um, is that he's such a messy guy, and that the messiness is just um, is a default because he ends up um, he's a gaff machine, as he's he's dubbed himself at one point, and he's um, he's somebody who does make mistakes as he goes, but that that quality is also the thing that makes him. Um, a good negotiator and that he is uh, he's able to kind of see the the messiness in other people at his best. And that that means that he can then um, shelve his ego and respond to their ambitions, to their ego and um, get to yes. And so, uh, you know, I think that constructing in, in the long messy pursuit of his domestic agenda where he was pursuing, I think, Probably far too much given his one vote majority in the Senate, but it was also he was bringing together this this coalition of, of Democrats to get to something. Um, he in, in dealing with all of the bloated expectations and the bloated egos that he needed to deal with there, he gets to yes, and it's 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 a really messy process. But I think you judge the guy on the victories that are accrued and. Um, you know there are a lot of things that have happened in his presidency that would have been the source of drama and or worst sources of drama in past presidencies. Whether it's the debt ceiling negotiation or the or the Silicon Valley bank bailout that he takes he disposes of relatively simply. And I think when it comes to managing things like the Ukraine war or relations with China or even. I think at the the the, uh, the Gaza war. What he's shown is a willingness to take risks that I think would have scared other politicians. Um, and he pushes in an aggressive sort of way. But you know, to his credit, I think he is acutely aware of the risks of going over the guardrails, and so he's able to, um, you know, with Ukraine, I it's really. I I struggle to imagine, especially any Democratic president, but even most other potential contenders for the presidency, to have um, given the Ukrainians as much as we've given the Ukrainians, and also, um, you know, managed the relationship with Russia in such a way where he's tested and poked and prodded and kind of tried to figure out what the limits are in the course of this. And um, with China, the same thing. Where he's he's really he's kept the Trump tariffs in place, which I'm, I'm sure is something you probably don't necessarily agree with. But um, he's uh, he's he's pushed them hard in you know lots of ways that are uh, you know both contiguous with Trump and a break from past Democratic orthodoxy without going to war with them. And I think with Israel, he's taken he's really um, I think it's a very good example of him applying his psychological theory of politics that he, by hugging Israel as close as he has, which is both a matter of um, principle of Zionism on his part. I mean, he's not just the last politician in the title of my book. He's probably the last Zionist in a certain sense, but he's done it in a way where he's also acutely aware of the psychology of the nation that he's dealing with and Bibi's own psychology. And he understands how um, he's not just doing the right thing in the moment, but that he's also building leverage so that he can not just protect Israel's security in the short run, but also kind of manage America's interest in the region over the long run.
2: All right, so I'm, I'm going to circle back to some of that stuff in a second, but just because it's front of mind on that point, I go back and forth about whether or not what what to believe in terms of how much the United States is actually pressuring or was actually pressuring, because now it sounds like Israel is going in on the ground in Gaza. But there was a lot of criticism from, you know, the right and elsewhere about how he says, uh, Israel has every right to respond. They should do whatever they have to do. And then within 24, 48, 72 hours, there's all of these stories about how the White House is pressuring, the Defense Department is pressuring Israel to delay a ground invasion. And I just honestly don't know. Like, is that, was that actually happening or was that a cover story that gives everybody some room so that Biden gets to say, hey, look, I got them to delay this um, when in fact Israel was never going to go in right away anyway because they didn't want to take the bait
1: that Hamas was setting. I I, I think what happened in that instance was that you had uh, like a political elite in Israel that was reeling and was confused and was needed actually somebody to step in and ask some hard questions of it about what it was actually trying to accomplish of then exacting, justifiably exacting revenge. And so by going in and sitting in the war cabinet, he wasn't dictating policy, but he was asking what I've seen. I have a chapter in my book about um, uh, the Gaza, Gaza 2021, where May 2021. So when he comes into office three or four months in, Hamas starts lobbing rockets at Tel Aviv and the rest of Israel, and Israel has to respond. And Biden tells his aides, he's like, look, we're scrapping the playbook here. Like, normally, you would try to dispatch John Kerry to um, the Middle East and you shuttle de- diplomacy and you'd call for a ceasefire straight away. And his response was, A, I believe Israel actually has a right to defend itself here. And that, that's the matter of principle. And then, B, there was a matter of psychology. He's like, I know B- I've know, known Bibi Netanyahu since the 1980s. Um, and I know that the best way to manage Bibi is to bank emotional trust with him and to show that I'm on his side. And then there's going to be a moment as his friend, I need to tell him, you know, the gig is up here. And so that there was a moment where they'd exhausted their targets in Gaza and Biden has a call with him and he literally tells them the runway is up, your runway is up here and it's time to wrap it up and he gets to a ceasefire. And so a conflict that in the course of the Obama administration extended over three months was wrapped up in the course of 11 days because he operated from this position, both of love, but also um, psychic acuity. So I think that when it comes to calling for the delay here, not calling for the delay, he didn't call for anything. It It was done in the spirit of friendship. It was done, it was done I think covertly before it was publicized to the world. I think he was doing it, um, kind of out of a principled desire for Israel to do what was best in, in Israel's interest. Okay, fair enough. I mean, I, I you
2: may be entirely right. i was just my point is is like there there are places where I'm places where I am perfectly happy to ding Biden as being as making a mistake or something like that. But like watching this unfold in real time over the last three weeks, the people who are taking all the leaks or statements from the White House or from the Netanyahu government at face value. It just strikes me as a mistake because we're going to find out, you know, there's a Frank Fuller right now writing the second book yeah. of the Biden yeah. administration, and we're going to find out that, no, like, like, I'm not saying we will find it. we'll find out something along the lines of Biden saying, I have to take this public line this way, but in private, here's what, you know, where the lines are and... They're different than what we're saying in public. And that happens in real unfolding crises in real time, you know, and it's just, there's this cable news pundit obsession with, since these are the only facts we have, let's take them as the total universe of facts that exists and they all must be correct. And then we can get to opine on things in ways that are going to be disproven later. And there's a
1: lot of that going on right now. Uh, uh, No, without a doubt. There's a lot of that going on. His relationship with Bibi is super interesting, if I I could dwell for a second, uh, because he's always had this attitude towards him. There was a trip he took in, I think it was 2010 to Jerusalem, and um, Bibi kind of ambushed him by announcing, because Obama was pushing on settlements, and Bibi, in the middle of Biden's trip, announced announced settlement construction in East Jerusalem, and it was very embarrassing for Biden, and there were lots of people in Washington who were telling Biden he needed to come home and and just uh, tell Bibi to f off. And his response was to come up to him the next day and hug him and say, "Look, you know, how do we make this better?" And that's just his relationship with Bibi and the Israelis is, I think, tends to be much more forgiving. Uh, certainly than the obama carry position i mean when i started talking to people in the administration straight after um october 7 they were made it very clear Biden, biden and blinken are not going to do the obama carry thing and that was a distinction they were drawing in their 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 heads and i don't think they were just telling that to me to blow smoke um and i think it's real that distinction
2: Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe 10,000 or 10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private, free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest. It is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation it's just like you load the app and it's. says, as of what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. There's so many places I can go with this, but let's, let's, since you brought it up, What is sort of the Biden teams and Biden himself, right? Because Biden's got this very close group of people who've been around him since his Senate days. Yep. And they were with the vice president. There's been a lot written about the tensions between the Obama people and the Biden people and Biden having hard feelings and all that. What is Biden's relationship with Obama and what is team Biden's relationship with team Obama?
1: Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's, Uh, Cordial on the surface Um, But And and I think it's chilled out a little bit Over the course of the presidency But when he came in There was uh, was a sense that he was going to do things Differently than Obama That, uh, you know uh, Biden knows that Obama Would roll his eyes at him Um, You know, class Is at the core of um, Biden's self-identity And it was at the core of his Tensions with Obama that um, Obama was this effete Ivy leaguer Biden some, sorry Obama was this Ivy leaguer Biden was somebody who was always acutely aware of the fact that he went to a state school and the way that he talks um, you know it, it's not just a product of where he comes from but I think that um, he views his manner of discourse as being too working class uh, that too folksy too um, too too unpolished to ever win favor with the Obama inner circle. And so they would roll their eyes at him. He would know that they were rolling their eyes at him. And that would be the type of thing that would propel him to talk even longer in those types of conversations because it just preyed on his insecurities in that sort of way. And I think that, uh, you know, operating off of that point of comparison is both a strength because it's born of experience, but it's also the type of thing that presumably gets carried too far in certain circumstances because not everything, not every mistake was uh, an eternal mistake. It might've been a mistake in certain circumstances and, you you know, it's the problem of fighting the last war. And I think that that sometimes has been um, Biden's problem. So, I mean, point, case in point would be the American rescue plan, the stimulus package that he passed straight out of the the box and he, he was determined to go too big you know, he, he, that was his, his instinct was because Obama hadn't put enough stimulus into the economy in 2009, he was going to overcorrect for that mistake. And that's born of certain um, analysis that he has about the long term scarring of effect of unemployment, and that it was better to push for a full employment economy. So he was intentionally running the economy too hot. And While I don't think the American Rescue Plan was the primary cause of inflation, it certainly contributed to inflation. And I think it had certain risks for the rest of his domestic agenda to invest so much in that first piece of legislation. And so in that instance, I think he was fighting the last war. Seth, where
2: I thought you were going to go with the last war thing was with Afghanistan, because my memory was that, you know, Biden had these weird statements in the obama administration about how the generals will lie to you and and i kind of got the feeling that um biden went into the afghanistan thing yeah trying to win an argument that he lost in the obama administration and was not looking at the facts on the ground in in a particularly clear way and we saw the consequences of it
1: i think that's kind of that's kind of the analysis in my book. which is, it, 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 as it happens, I think that was also Millie's analysis, too, to a certain extent, that um, Obama had been boxed in by the Pentagon in the course of um, making his own decision, that they presented him with a series of options that, and they leaked quite a bit in the course of um, those proceedings, and uh, Obama felt boxed in by the decision. And so Biden was determined to win a bureaucratic war that actually wasn't even being waged because Milley was so committed to the idea of restoring um, civilian rule, and he was so worried that he it would be accused of launching a coup, which was what the accusation was um, uh, that kind of hovered over him at various moments during the Trump presidency in, in fairly incoherent sorts of ways, that his inclination was to just kind of back off. He would give Biden his best advice, but he wasn't going to wage war behind his back by leaking or by, and he was going to be a good soldier and salute with whatever decision that he made. But I think the problem with the way that Biden structured the process for withdrawing from Afghanistan wasn't necessarily the outcome that he desired. It was the way in which um, the people of Afghanistan never really entered into his calculus. And I think that was the cardinal sin that ended up, resounding over the course of the next couple months, that they never really were committed to a humanitarian evacuation of Afghanistan. They never really thought about the humanitarian consequences of their decision. I don't know what the right right decision was, but obviously, as things played out, it was pretty clear that they had underprepared for the humanitarian consequences of what they were of the policy that he preferred. Yeah, I mean
2: I, I I think it was other than I mean I often say that other than appointing Kamala Harris, the withdrawal from Afghanistan was the biggest mistake of of, of Biden's I mean, technically Harris isn't his wasn't picked when he was president, but those were his two biggest political mistakes. But the what would you say if, if you could give Biden truth serum about the Afghanistan um, decision?
1: And how it played out?
2: What would he? What do you think he would actually say?
1: I think he would be. Um, I think he is stubbornly defensive about that decision. He really believes he made the right call. Uh, he thinks that um, it was inherently messy getting out, which is what he believes. But it's not what he told the American public. This is the problem. Like if if he had said to the American public when he withdrew from Afghanistan, "I'm about to do something that's going to be really ugly and really messy," and there's I have very limited ability to deal with that uh, because even though I'm president of the United States, this war is getting out of a war. Is, that would be one thing. Um, I don't think that that would be true. I think that the president has lots of recourses in the course of um, even executing a policy like that. But I think he believes that um, he pivoted in this moment of pressure when everything had collapsed and, was able to get 125,000 people out of the country and that that's an achievement that everybody underrates. That's that's what he thinks in his own head.
2: I, You know, my, my point at the time, my point to this day is that it seemed to be, other than the point we already discussed about him trying to settle an old argument, was there were a lot of people who looked at the polls and said, polls said American people don't want to be in Afghanistan and they want to get out. I would have said, I don't want to be in Afghanistan. I'd like to get out. There are like three other stages of analysis required about how do you get out? When do you get out? On what terms? You know, Um, and so it's sort of, to me, it was always sort of reminiscent of, you know, when ISIS cut off, and everyone wanted to get out of the Middle East in, in the Obama administration, they were right. American people were sick of all this stuff. And then ISIS cuts off the heads of a couple of Americans And all of a sudden Americans are like, oh man, you shouldn't have done that. We got to go in. And American people can change their minds about things. Everybody would want to have gotten out of Afghanistan if it wasn't humiliating and embarrassing and didn't look like Saigon, you know, um, particularly when it was Biden who introduced in many ways this, will this be like Saigon conversation into American politics? And then it looked like the fall of Saigon. And so the thinking, the it's always seemed to me the political blunder, forget the geostrategic blunder about pivoting to Asia and then withdrawing a major listening post in Asia. Um, uh, The political blunder was thinking that there was deep support in the polls for bugging out under any circumstances and at all costs. Whereas instead it was a sort of a directional, a notional kind of like, yeah, I don't want to be there. You know, it'd be good to get out of there. But that doesn't mean we want the Taliban to take over. It doesn't mean that Americans are going to get killed pulling out, or we're going to give all these weapons to the, you know, to the Taliban. And
1: it felt very poll-driven to the extent it wasn't settling. This uh, it was. Place. It wasn't poll-driven. I mean, I, I think it was something. Or should I should say poll-justified. I'm, yeah. I'm sure it is poll-justified. I think that everybody who um, who had objections to the policy were able to justify it as poll- by by the polling, say, okay, this is what the American people want, and therefore. I'm not going to object too strenuously to what the president of the United States wants to do, but in his view, so uh, um, he was somebody who has, uh, we talked about his relationship with Obama, his relationship with the foreign policy elite is equally contorted and that is driven by the same class anxieties that he would love to get the approval of the Council on Foreign Relations, but he knows on some level that he can't get the approval of those types of people. And so... He thinks he's then in his head constructed this idea that he they're lazy they're they're high bound that he's the contrarian that he went to Afghanistan all of these times he could see before anybody else that it was a failed exercise in in nation building all these promises that the generals always made that it was Afghanistan was just about to turn the corner the government was about to get less corrupt you know Taliban were about to disappear in the next campaign he could see the hollowness of all of those promises and he felt like he was the only person who had the contrarian courage to go in there and um, uh, to rip off the band-aid to to use the first cliche that comes to mind but but that's what he thought that's what he genuinely thought
2: all right so switching gears um because we could argue about afghanistan a lot um but so on the right there are two i mean it's very similar to like bush era left-wing craziness there's this right-wing thing where people simultaneously want to hold that he is a doddering, drooling, uh, incompetent who can barely figure out like a Mr. Magoo who has no idea what he's doing or where he's going. And he's a criminal mastermind. And, um, you can't have both, right? People want to say that George W. Bush was a blithering idiot and the, the architect of one of the greatest, you know, uh, you know, conspiracies in human history, right? It's like pick a lane, right? And um and so where do you come down? I mean I understand that you've developed relationships with a lot of these people and you know you have you know a fondness for the guy that that I don't but like how compassments is he? Like when you when you when you get asked at a Thanksgiving dinner by a relative, what's what's your answer to that question?
1: Yeah. Um is that he he is compost mentis now that like that he's actually you could say that a lot of his qualities which are the opposite of being a marionette that he he has a temper that he is very stubborn that he can he can dig in that he rejects the advice of his advisors like that those are all arguably signs of aging but that's closer to who he is than being this vessel, you know, and I. There's a. I mean, he has said strange things at weird moments yeah, for 50 but, but years. he. But he is also he's also clearly aging. It's like you don't it's you don't have to be Bob Woodward mm-hmm. to be able to uncover the fact that he's old as you know he's really old and that he's getting you know that he. You look at video, it, from the campaign and now you would see a change as you see with every president of the United States, but not every president of the United States is 80 years old, and so that's. um and the hard thing about aging is like, you know, it's going to continue, you know, that people age differently and sometimes they fall right off of a cliff. And sometimes it's certain things go faster than other things. And, you know, as a as an objective matter, it is kind of crazy, the idea of having an 86 year old president. I don't think that's something that anybody would prefer.
2: No, I agree with that. I mean, I, I, I think we're going to get to Trump stuff in a second, but like. It is shameful and embarrassing for a serious country to have a situation where these these two old men who are not in their prime, uh, and who are sufficiently unpopular that they have a chance of losing to the other one, are the choices that we've we've gotten ourselves into. And um I, I'm perfectly open to arguments that Trump, you know, the, the PJ or work line in 2016 was that. Trump is unfit outside of normal parameters, and Hillary was unfit with inside normal parameters. So, perfectly legitimate arguments to make, but at the same time, this country can do better than than where we've gotten ourselves.
1: Without a doubt, I would say one thing though, that, which is that if if this is the matchup we get, there are differences in. So, this is all framed as questions of mental acuity. That Trump is clearly, you know, there 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 mental acuity questions that could be posed of Trump that he's a lunatic right? And then there's mental acuity questions that could be posed of Biden, which is that he's too old. But those two things do, you know, they don't really exist on a spectrum. They're differences in kind. Both of those questions are legitimate Mm -hmm. questions to be posed of a presidential candidate. But I think that sometimes there's a tendency to compress the two, even as I agree with you that this is not a healthy choice for American democracy.
2: Yeah, look, I mean, just uh, to be clear, I think Trump is independent of all other things fundamentally unfit to be president of the United States, particularly after January 6th. Right. I mean, it just is like, it is, it is, is, I agree with you entirely. It is a difference of category um, uh, in terms of Biden. But part of the problem is, is that in the conversation that we get into is pundit types is you look through it in terms of the, the, the political realities of it. And these things tend to, as talking points, tend to cancel each other out. It doesn't matter how good they work as logic, but you can't like the, whatever you think about the Hunter Biden stuff, which we can talk about, like it is bad politically because it gives the Trump people something to totally, respond. Totally. To. And, and right. And you call us corrupt.
1: Well, what about this? Right. Then that, that's, and as a political matter, that's messed up. And, and- you know, look, I wrote a book about Biden that is, in a lot of ways, a very admiring book. I mean, I think that you could look at the Biden who emerges from my pages and and dislike him in certain ways that you probably didn't know that you disliked him before. But fundamentally, I think that he's done a good job. And the fact that he's been so unable to connect his accomplishments uh, with the american people and to, to have them resonate in any sort of way and conditions in this country while not ideal like have been improving especially over the course of the last year whether it's the crime statistics or whether it's inflation or you know we're still growing at, we, you know we we may you know, I hesitate to say we've nailed the soft landing but right now we're in soft landing territory and and yet like when matched against the lunatic he's he's tied or maybe behind and that's a that's that is mm-hmm. hard to ascribe to anything other than age
2: so that's so that it gets me to things your theory of the case um, is that his inability to sell his own accomplishments to do better in the bowls to have a higher approval rating um, you think that the the mouse at in the in the wheel at the center of this Rube Goldberg machine of Biden's problems is simply his age.
1: I think there are many problems. I think that, uh, I think that inflation is, um, inflation is a special type of economic pain that colors the way that people think about everything. And so I think that that gets in his ability to talk about his accomplishments. I think yeah, this is, it's, there's a problem that he's had from the start, which is that um is just some of the messiness of the problems that he's confronting. So crowing about conquering COVID is something that was hard for him to do because COVID never disappeared. Um, uh, Crowing about um, uh, having an economy that is in soft landing territory is hard to do because uh, the memory of inflation still lingers, and um, even as inflation continues to go down, and interest rates are freaking high, which makes it hard to buy a new house or to start a new business or do anything else in the economy. So um, those are nasty, uh, nasty problems to have to contend with. Um, and the world's on fire. And it's hard to say that you've you've been um, a steady hand, even if you have been, when and that you know hard to crow about uh, what you've done for the Ukrainians when the Ukrainians are still engaged in an existential fight. It's hard to say that your wisdom has prevented us from getting into um, an existentially dangerous conflict with one of our powerful adversaries when uh, there's a war in the Middle East and um, we have battleships all over the place and we have bases that are being attacked and we have uh, we're intercepting um, rockets from the uh, Hooties, uh, that's a hard case to make. But I do think that the thing about his age is that nobody is willing to credit Biden for things because they don't believe it. It's hard, to, it's hard to say that he's run an energetic presidency where he's making these decisions when people look at him and they doubt that that's the case because of the way that he walks and the way that he talks.
0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
2: So I had this theory. I wrote about it like inauguration week that what Biden should have done is take a page from Eisenhower, right? Where admittedly different times in all sorts of ways, different economy, just finished, you know, just one World War II and all that. But... um Eisenhower did not insert himself much into daily politics. He really kind of stayed above the fray, was kind of like America's grandpa. Um, The fact that both parties at one point or another wanted him as their nominee tells you something about people's attitude towards him, right? But he ran on, you know, but Biden ran on this unity thing. and, um, And one of the great things that Eisenhower did was he let political issues ripen. And then he went out and just sort of, um, gave these kinds of like deliberately muddled sort of statements and then went back inside, right? But behind the scenes, he was a very energetic president. He actually knew how to run bureaucracies much more than Truman thought he was being able to, but he stayed above the fray. You can make the argument too much so with the McCarthy stuff. That's fine. Um, but he didn't expend a lot of political capital on the day-to-day fights. And it seemed to me that, that, you know, Those historians that met with Biden and said, you can be, you can go full FDR, you can go bigger than Obama, did not do Biden, did not do Biden favors. Because given the nature of polarization in America today, and given the nature of the Democratic Party, he basically, um, by swinging for the fences, Burned to the ability to be seen as and maybe it was never possible in the first place given where the republicans are which is i'm entirely open to but um he could have picked some sister soldier moments he could have picked some moments where he kind of gave ammo to moderate and centrist republicans um that there was a, there was an ear in the white house and i understand there were a couple of bills that got republican votes but um he really did not do nearly as much as, as the talking points claim about bringing back working across the aisle in a way that makes it culturally and politically safe to work across.
1: You think that's possible that he could have done that? I mean, I think that I, I look at his, um, his numbers. And what I see is that, um, when it comes to older white voters to a lot of the, um, the, the Romney Biden voters that he's, he's still doing, they'll vote for him, that that's not going to be his problem coming into this election. His bigger problem is going to be with black voters, with Latino voters, with young voters, with people who don't vote. I mean, Nate Cohen wrote a piece yesterday about how it's all the people who don't vote in midterm elections are his issue. Or issue. I think he, you know, my sense is that he'll do, he could do, he could win Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh but then lose Arizona, Nevada, Georgia. I mean I you know when I look at the map the thing that I I see is it's like it it's you know something that comes down to the one <laughs> the one the one congressional district in in Nebraska. But um uh you know I think that with those voters in those places it really is the the lack of energy, the um the disconnection that they feel from His presidency, I think it's age. I really do. I really do. Mm -hmm.
2: And so the age, so I've been making the point for a long time, the age thing is itself kind of a euphemism, right? Because no one really talks about Bernie Sanders' age being a problem. It's that, it's the ways in which Biden shows his signs of age, which is, you know, and um, if, I mean, like Don Rumsfeld had a steel trap memory, you know, much better than mine in his late seventies or whatever. And um, Biden simply doesn't have that. Um, do you think that like, if he had been dying his hair, if he had been, if he still seemed compass mentis, anybody would care about the age thing, or is it, are you using age also
1: just a little bit as a euphemism as well for seeing, seeming like he's lost a step? I think it's, it's seeming like he's lost a step. And I think it's, people read age by looking at the way that he talks and looking at the way that he walks and they all just scream old man and that that colors everything else that, um, uh, it's, it's, it's not that, you know, I I agree with you that if he had leaned into being the national grandfather in that Eisenhower sort of way, that that would have been maybe a, a palatable political persona for him to inhabit. But then the way that he walks and talks, it sometimes it feels like he's not just the national grandfather, he's like the national great grandfather. There's something that's just extreme about it. People age differently. They, you know, he he hasn't aged in that Rumsfeld sort of way. He hasn't aged in the John Kerry sort of way.
2: I I don't have a lot more time with you and I I I I I gotta ask about this. So as you know, as well as I, you've been around doing this stuff as long as I have, there is a certain language of the green room. Yeah. And the commercial break that does not spill over when the camera goes back on. And um, when I and my friends and colleagues, whatever, talk to Democratic muckety-mucks, I'm not saying that I've not heard anybody say in a while that Biden won't be the nominee or that he will drop out or anything like that, but nobody... But it's rare when I, when you talk to people in private in confidence, just trying to get, you know, what what is your side thinking? Whatever kind of thing. Um, it is treated as a much more of a live proposition, a live question than the public facing discourse would suggest. Right. It gets for completely understandable political reasons. It gets shut down right away. Biden's the nominee, he's not getting out, right? Um uh but then you have a conversation with some of those people in private and they're like, look, it's a sticky situation. What do you want us to do? Blah, 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 blah.
1: What is your sense of like the probabilities here? The the reality of it? I go back and forth on this, but I still think that there's some possibility that it won't happen. I You know, I try to correct for pundit wish casting, which is like a very real tendency mm-hmm. in those green rooms. It's people want there to be something, you know, among Democrats, there's um, kind of the, the, bed quotient, which is um always there. Um, but I think maybe um backed up by polling this time and in, in a very real thing. Um and then there's a sense that you want something that'll be interesting and exciting. And Joe Biden is a terrible TV character. Joe Biden is um uh he's he's so familiar. It feels to pundits like there's nothing new to say about him anymore. Um, and I think Joe Biden also um, uh, is so worried about saying the wrong thing that he has this tendency to not just self edit, um, which I think is part of the problem with his persona, but to close himself off from the world. And so it allows for this impression that he is a marionette to fester. And, uh, you know, obviously people in media would prefer there to be um, a young, exciting, Candidate who, or a John McCain candidate who comes to the back of the bus and says whatever's on their mind, and he's become so far from that character. All right. So another of the lightning round
2: questions is, how's he getting along? What what is what what is the actual relationship between um, Harris and Harris and Biden and Team Harris and Team Biden?
1: Yeah. So uh, this this uh, this varies by the week. Uh, I think his relationship with with Harris is. Um, Is distant, but fine. That I think that, you know, he, um, there's, well, there is something a little bit sadistic to the relationship where I think because he was a vice president, he's very acutely aware of treating her with a certain type of formal respect that he felt he wasn't accorded. But he also, I think, believes in some of the hazing that happens to a vice president. And so, that's why she gets an assignment like Central America, which is so thankless, but it was the assignment that was given to Joe Biden himself. And the, the core problem is that he just doesn't need her in the way that Obama needed him or that Obama felt like he needed him. Obama may have rolled his eyes at him. And part of the reason he may have done that is because he didn't like the idea that he was dependent on Joe Biden for certain foreign policy questions or to negotiate with Mitch McConnell and to do all these things that he either... Uh, found distasteful or didn't want to do, he needed Joe Biden. Joe Biden does not believe, there's not a bone in Joe Biden's body that believes that he needs Kamala Harris in order to succeed. And so there's kind of this rote quality occasionally to the way in which he divides labor, which is bound to be the type of thing that makes a vice president who's already prone to insecurity, because that's the nature of the job, become even more insecure. Team Harris, Team Biden? Well, I mean, Team Harris has been so dysfunctional uh, throughout the the Harris vice presidency, and there's been so much churn there. I think it's, I mean, it's it's said to be to be much more of a, a functional team than was there at the beginning. And I think the Biden people have gone through periods where they felt um, some exasperation with her, to periods where they feel like they need to defend her relentlessly, and they don't really have much of a choice there. They kind of, I think as a matter of um, self-preservation for themselves, they have to defend themselves relentlessly. So I think even in private, at this stage, they're they loath to her
2: Okay, so hypothetical. Biden picks Amy Klobuchar as his vice presidential candidate. And Klobuchar does, wows the media, charms them, seems super competent all that kind of stuff is generally more popular than Joe Biden. I don't think that's entirely implausible, right? It's not a wild kind of thing. Uh, Does Biden not run because he feels, he feels
1: sure that Globetrotter could, could beat Trump? Um, I think the more pertinent hypothetical is whether Trump does, if Trump didn't run, would Biden not run? I think that Trump, as uh, Biden likes to believe in his own indispensability, that that's a very comforting notion to him, and that he was the guy who slayed the dragon once, so you need to bring him back to slay the dragon again. That, I think, is easier for him psychologically than confronting his own mortality and giving up a job that he essentially loves. I think one of the underrated parts of his calculus is that as hellish as a presidency in this stretch of American history might seem to the outside. It's something that Joe Biden um, thrills to. He he really likes being president of the United States. He really, and, and um, the hardest part with pol- aging politicians is that to give up your job requires confronting your own mortality. And I think that that's something that's, you know, hard for every human being to do, but seems to be, you know, probably especially hard for him
2: um i, I think an enormous amount of grief if i don't at least ask you about it um what is your bottom line position about the whole Biden crime family hunter the
1: investigation all the rest um hunter is a total skis and his father should have at many stops along the line told him to stop that it was just it was in addition to being the ethically right thing to do, it's a politically common sense type of thing to do. And, um, you know, I'm willing to cut Biden some slack in the context of all of the familial trauma that it comes in and like all of the guilt that I think is both layered onto, um, it, it layered onto the Hunter-Joe uh, relationship that I think Hunter knows that he was not the beloved son. And Joe knows that Hunter knows that he was not the beloved son, which makes it very hard for him to say, "Hey, stop being an idiot." And you know, it it, it to chastise him in that sort of way would probably feel like he was constantly telling him, "God, I wish you were more like Bo," which I think is the thing that Hunter finds probably hardest to hear in the world. Um, and um, so, you know, that said, um, while there are s- I haven't seen anything that comes close to conclusively showing that um, Biden was self-enriching off of this relationship. I know that there's a lot of suggestive stuff that's out there, and it should be looked into, of course, but in order to take it, um, in order to to treat it as more than smoke, there needs to be more than smoke there at a certain stage. And prosecutors have been poring over this for, for years. and. Having watched Merrick Garland, um, my sense of Merrick Garland is that um, he's not an idiot. He knows that if there is something there and he sits on it, he will. It'll be the end of his legacy, and it would break this one thing that he cares most about in the world, which is his rest, his um, his reputation for uh, fervently following the rule of law. So um, I don't think that there is any sort of giant cover up there. I think that Hunter has been very poorly served by his legal counsel, which is another instance where if I was Joe, if I was his father, I would tell him to get better lawyers. And I would tell him to um, take a plea bargain, even if it's one that doesn't insulate him from prosecution in a Trump presidency, because it's so politically important for him to have settled this and to, to at least legally move beyond it. Yeah. So. I am not deeply
2: invested in this issue, but I, I, I feel obliged to just push back and you can respond however you like. In Insofar as, I think it is pretty obvious that James Biden and Hunter Biden were in the influence peddling Joe Biden business. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with that. And, um, and but as both of us know, influence peddling, qua influence peddling, is itself not a crime. Um, it is, it depends on how you do it right? And it depends on whether or not you're in office or not. And so one of the places where I have a lot of skepticism about the the Jamie Comer stuff and the the Jim Jordan stuff is they will often not specify the timeframes where things are happening, right? So like my impression is that Joe Biden was not planning on ever running for president again or office again. He wanted to sort of, uh, Get a payout, which a lot of politicians do now when they leave office, right? And so he starts working deals with his brother and Hunter to set up some speeches, to set up some consulting things where you get to meet him. But like this is on his way out as vice president. And a lame duck vice president is one of the least powerful people in American life. And then a former lame duck vice president is even less powerful. And so a lot of the time you ask people about, oh, where where did this money come from and all that kind of stuff? And they say, you know, well, it came from the Chinese. Okay. But when? And he said, well, 2018, 2017. I was like, okay, well, so he wasn't vice president anymore. So that doesn't make any of it impeachable. It doesn't necessarily make it any of it criminal. Um it does make it sleazy, I think, in a certain sort of, it's not, the crime is what's legal, not what's illegal kind of thing. But, um, so I think all of that is super, super ugly. And I also think that like Biden clearly has lied about not knowing anything or that Hunter didn't do anything wrong or any of that kind of stuff. I just don't see where I'm with you is, is I? I, I they've, they've yet to find a place of connecting the time, the money. I mean, we just saw last week, or was it a week before, that James Biden has now written a check to Joe for $200,000 they found. But again, it was from 2018. So, you, you know, it
1: need, there needs to be more there, there.
2: I, I agree with that. I, I,
1: I can't see anything wrong with what you just, I mean, I can't see anything where I would diverge too great from what that.
2: Yeah, I mean, like, I, I did not think I was going to out, elicit outrage from you but i just <laughs> um but i thought it was important to be clear about it all right so last question i guess is um and i'll put it this way i think biden was really right and in some ways historically heroic for for recognizing the ukraine invasion for the monstrosity that it was maybe he was correcting for the what i thought was a bad obama administration response in 2014 um but my criticism of, so he that puts huge points on the board, right, for me. Um, at the same time, I get exhausted with the, um, we'll give him whatever it takes, but no, you can't have this weapon system. No, you can't have this. No, you can't have this. No, you can't have this. And then, yes, okay, here it is, right? And so part of the question is, is how much of that is um, Biden working within the realm of the possible with NATO allies and the rest? And how much of it is him being more afraid of a Ukraine, that's probably unfair to put it, but like doesn't, I was going to say more afraid of a Ukraine victory than than a Russia defeat. Um, But there is this sort of no, 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 yes thing rather than just going all in. And the reason I put it in that context is because I care about that, but also are there, other than Jake Sullivan, right? And maybe, I don't know who else the Reagan administration had a lot of Reaganites. The Obama administration had a lot of Obamaites. Um, The Bush administration had some Bushies, right? I mean, there were some people who were ideologically aligned and they they immediately knew what the boss wanted. It does not feel to me like the Biden White House is full of people who are allegedly pragmatic, centrist Democrat types, or at least that's how, there's not a lot of mini Scranton Joes (laughs) in the administration. And it feels like over time, He is often sort of pulled more to the left than he might otherwise like because there's not equal counterpressure on the other side of him. And this gets in part to sort of the standard rap that he was never a centrist. He was a centrist within the the antipodes of the Democratic Party. So I lied when I said it was the last question because I crammed four questions in there. So just take that anywhere you want to go.
1: So I think it's important with the questions about weapon systems to um, ask, what what they would have done on the battlefield and how significantly would they have changed the course of the second Ukrainian counteroffensive because we gave them what it took in order to to manage the first counteroffensive in a very effective sort of way. And I, I honestly think that there's probably not that much that could have been done differently to shape the contours of this counteroffensive that uh, in order to get the air cover that they needed, would take significant amounts of time to train. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah. But if we'd said yes to F-16s a year and a half ago, we'd have, they'd have the F-16s now,
1: right? I have to go back and look at the timeline that it would take to get, like to get all the pilots trained and up to speed. I mean, there's, there's a couple problems with that. I mean, it's one is that, um, that Ukrainian air force is thin to begin with. And then the second is that they don't speak English. And so there's like, um, there's, there's a, it's not a quick process to get this up and running and I think that the air defenses would be it's it's important to have f-16s over the long run because they help preserve independent Ukraine and protect protect but I, I'm not sure when I've asked defense analysts to know this much I I have to have some humility about this like that I just don't understand um I don't understand how a a certain weapon system will change anything on the battlefield. I don't actually think that the Ukrainians necessarily understand this themselves a lot of the time because um, they just want, they want more understandably, justifiably as they should, but that doesn't mean that they are asking for the thing that will give them the the, the decisive advantage in battle. So I, I just have to plead some humility on that.
2: Okay. But, but, but your argument is itself interesting. in so far as it, you think it's purely based upon the mer- the merits of the thing, and not a political thing? Okay, I don't.
1: I think that there is a. I think that it's not a political thing. I think it's a Joe Biden thing. I think that Joe Biden is. Uh, there's like two parts to this. One is I don't think he likes being. It's part of him that chafes at being bullied based on Zelensky's pressure to give him something, and so his instinct is always to resist for reasons that are like a little bit vain and a little bit. But, but also that there is this um, prudence and caution baked into the way that he thinks about things for better or for worse. And that he is a guy who grew up hiding under his desk in air raid drills. And so he does ask questions about escalation and he needs to be persuaded that something won't result in escalation before he gives it. I would argue that he doesn't need to fear that we've had enough evidence to the contrary that it's not going to contribute to escalation in ukraine and that he could afford to be um less cautious than he has been uh but then your your question is um is he sui generous does he represent something is he this atavistic character who doesn't represent anything any real current within the democratic party and is he pushed to the left, because he is bar- barometrically planted to the center of the Democratic Party, I think that there is something to that line of analysis. I think that with foreign policy, it's not like uh, he's generated this. Well, with Ukraine, I think that you did see kind of a surge of very mainstream Democrats rushing to the Ukrainian cause. And they're... the psychodrama of that is complicated because it has to do with the Trump impeachment. It has to do with hatred for Putin that is baked that comes from the 2016 campaign. But I think that there was significantly more support for a hawkish policy on Ukraine than you would have seen, certainly in the Obama administration, and that there was something maybe a little bit lasting there. But then you see on Israel, he hasn't been able to carry a lot of those people forward with him on his Israel policy. So um, I did not give you a coherent answer there.
2: No, that's that's fine. I mean, like, all right, I'll, I'll, so I'll punish you for your incoherence just to ask you a straight-up puntergy question. What is the long-term possibility that he, that, that Democrats cannot sustain long-term support for Israel and, in many ways the way Republicans seem incapable of sustaining long-term support for Ukraine now?
1: Yeah, I think that that's, that's definitely a real possibility. I mean, I think that uh, the, in some ways Israel has been lucky with the, you know, if, if there'd been Hillary Clinton presidency, if there'd been a Joe Biden presidency, I think that, that, that forestalls um, uh, an internal civil war in the democratic party over Israel, but it's hard to, to not see that coming at some point in the near future.
2: All right, Frank forward Thank you for doing this. I, I should have you back because we can then, now that we've, we've done the obligatory book promotion thing, I can, we can get back to the old tradition of just yelling at each other about why we're wrong about things. Uh, But thanks for doing this. I really enjoyed it. Okay. So Frank Fowler has left the uh, studio and uh, it was great to catch up with him. I I like Frank as obviously I go back away with him. I anticipate, I'm I'm very curious to see who I get the most grief from. Um, Will it be from... Conservatives or Republicans who um, thought I went too easy on his descriptions of the Biden administration? Will it be from liberals and Democrats who think I was too harsh on the Biden administration? Or will it be from my reprobate friends who are also at lunch um, with the Slate guys uh, back in the 90s who just give me grief for not giving Frank more crap about anything? Um but uh, that time will tell. And um, as I mentioned in the last episode, uh, the the SCIF is up and running. This is the members only, uh, dispatch subscriber only uh, podcast stream. We've got a lot of great stuff in there. We're going to have more and more great stuff in there, including, well, I don't know if it'd be great, but it may be of interest. I'm going to do um, AMAs in there. And the first one we'll probably do at the end of this week or the beginning of next week. Um, so if you have questions on this or anything, you know, what was Frank Fowler like when he had hair, um, uh, anything along those lines, uh, it's all fair game. Just send uh, your questions to uh, the remnant at thedispatch.com. Um, and if the the is too oner- onerous for you, you can also send it to remnant at, dis- at the dispatch.com um, And uh, obviously there were places where I could have gotten into a Snarky fight with 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 Frank on a bunch of stuff, but um, I didn't want to just do it as just a, a sort of a talking head pundit fight. And I thought hearing the good faith, and I think Frank operates in good faith, you know, version that he knows better than I do because he spent a lot of time in the White House, was was interesting on the merits. And the book, um, again, I haven't read the whole thing; I've just been dipping in and out. Um, is really interesting um, and worth taking a look at for people who are interested. So with that, uh, thanks again, and I'll see you next time.
1: No, you won't. This is a podcast.